Hello and welcome to EPR with your favorite environmental enthusiasts, Nick and Laura. On today's episode, Laura and I discuss personal growth. We talked to Dr. Jason Shiflett about continuing education, geology, and field notes. And finally, rubies and sapphires are actually the same mineral, corundum. But traces of iron stain the mineral red for ruby, while traces of chromium or titanium stain the mineral blue for sapphires, which is kind of wild. Also, just FYI, rubies, sapphires, and emeralds are all more rare than diamonds. How about that? That's great. I don't own any of those. <laughs> and I think Not we should change either, the name to actually. corundium. Yeah, I, I would I would love some corundum. Corundum. I said it wrong the first. <laughs> so yeah, there we go. Uh, get that music. All right, coming up soon, NAEP and APU are hosting a webinar on the restoration of the Indian River Lagoon at 11 Eastern on January 25th. It will inform you on the restoration process. Please check it out at naep.org for more details. Our sponsor today is Dawson. Dawson is a native Hawaiian global business enterprise serving federal clients through construction, PTS, and environmental services. Operating worldwide, Dawson is headquartered in Honolulu, Hawaii, with offices across the U.S., rooted in Hawaiian values of aloha, embodying humility, respect, and compassion for all, and ohana, family, Dawson carries forward a kuleana responsibility to benefit the native Hawaiian community. Dawson's environmental branch brings science, solutions, and sustainability to planning, compliance, munitions, and remediation. With a permanent 8A status, Dawson is the perfect solution to all your business needs. Now let's get to our segment. So, Laura, there's a topic that we haven't talked about at all, not even today, I would say, about personal growth. We talked to Jason about it quite a bit, and it was really fun to hear him have the perspective that he did, right? Which was basically like, you're responsible for growth and you should want to find areas to grow. So I don't know. Let's talk about it. I mean, like, where do you see the value in doing this kind of thing? And where do you even start? Because that's a, it's a really challenging thing and really different from when you start your career to where, like, you know, as you progress... But I mean, I think it's pretty important to do all the way throughout. Yeah, absolutely. I think it's important for everyone. If we're not moving forward, you're pretty much moving backwards, right? Um, Also, this is a very challenging world that we live in. So having tools and resources and being the kind of person who has reflection and self-evaluates and does incorporates ways to improve themselves in order to be a better neighbor and community member coworker is really important. So one of my favorite ways is books. I like to read, you know, I'm in the high impact book club and we read a leadership or personal growth book every month. And then we're going in our fourth year. So I've read a lot of books. <laughs> um, I read the four agreements probably twice a year now. How about you? So I've read leadership books and I could say I've, I've done, you know, Dale Carnegie class. I've done a bunch of different things on leadership, you know, it, uh, if we're talking about personal growth, it's not just leadership. There is definitely some of that, that that kind of applies across the board, right? Like learning how to be a better person will make you a better leader in general. How to get better, be the best you is going to help you. And when you are confident, when you are, you know, you understand who you are, it kind of, it helps everybody understand, oh, this person knows what they're talking about and I can trust them. And that's a lot of what leadership is, is getting people to buy into what you're trying to do. But if you don't buy into yourself, it's not going to work. It just isn't. And so that's something that 
because I am a product of the internet age. I read everything I can about everything I can all at once. And it is at times overwhelming and exhausting. And I think one of the biggest things that I had to learn my early 30s, and I wish I had learned this earlier, but it's hard to do. Like you just mentally, I wasn't really ready to examine who I was as a person before that. Right. But I was not taking any time to reflect on what I was reading or how I was doing or anything like that. I wasn't going, you know, I was just waiting for the review process for someone to tell me, oh yeah, you're good at this, that, the other or whatever. And then that, that shifted to like, okay, what do I actually want? What do, <laughs> what do I want to be better at? Where do I want to grow? So I kind of had to like readjust the way that I was even working. And that doesn't come without that period of self-reflection, right? Like, oh, I'm really good at X, Y, and Z, but I still need to get better at it. You know, there's always room to grow. There's always people that are, you know, role models where you look at them and say, wow, that person's great at presenting or that, wow, that person's great at seeing all the detail in a comment and, and being able to address it. So I don't know. There's lots of different reasons to do it for sure. But that kind of self-reflection is very, very important. So you read a lot and you, like you said, you are reading articles and you're reading all the time. When do you stop? How have you learned to implement some of the things that you are reading about? Or are you just reading about new things that help you on your job? It's a lot of different things, right? There, I think for me, being creative you know, is really important. So trying to find outlets that maybe they don't relate to my job directly, but help me think in different ways is really important. Reading blog posts from people that I know and respect, like Miss Laura Thorne. Don't tell her I said that. Um, but like, you know, there's stuff like that that pops up that matters. But some people take... Every Saturday, they're like, I'm going to sit down and think about what I learned this week and how I can be better. And that's kind of exhausting for me. So, you know, I definitely do it at the end of the year, for sure. And I try to do it periodically throughout because it's never great to hold on to something for a year, you know, but every week's a bit much for me. So it's kind of more like, um, you know, every month or two, I'll kind of just have a day where I can sit and think. And that's, for me, very important. I don't know, but how do you do it? Well, there's the reading books and part of the, the purpose for creating the book club so that was so that we would stop and talk and have conversation about how we would implement things. So that's been going really well. I also have a accountability buddy. So I think I've mentioned him before, but my friend, Brian, we meet, we try to meet every week, but we meet probably every other week. And we basically talk about our goals and what we're working on and our personal development goals. So we oh. talk a lot about philosophical things or just like goals we've set for ourselves. And sometimes he calls me out on things I said I was going to do that I didn't do and vice versa. <laughs> nice. um, but then also just mentoring, I think actively using the tools and things that you've picked up on the way and giving them back to a younger person or not even a younger person. I've mentored lots of peers that are like my accountability buddy. And I, that's a great way to really kind of vocalize the things that you've, you're trying to internalize and then also see if they still make sense when they come out of your mouth. <laughs> yeah. I mean, gosh, <laughs> just thinking about the things I just said, did that make sense? No. <laughs> yeah. Well, that's really cool. So how did you, how did you get involved in that then? Well, that was kind of a funny thing. A friend of mine started dating Brian a couple of years ago and Brian was trying to start a, a business and he was struggling with spreadsheets and processes and really, you know, the stuff that I'm, that I really like, I'm good at. So his girlfriend, Mason, who's an amazing artist, she was like, maybe you should talk to Laura. <laughs> and so Brian and I have been meeting and Brian's an amazing, amazing artist as well. We've been meeting for three years now, longer, maybe, but 
one of my best friends, like super fantastic. Yeah. So I, I really, I think everyone should try to find someone like that, a peer mentor, someone that they really can, you can share and vent, but you're mostly there to help lift each other up. And to really, there's, there are times when one of us has had a bad week and then we're able to say like, well, you could also look at it this way, you know? Yeah. Oh man. Yeah. And that's invaluable because it's really yeah. hard once you start spiraling to keep, to pull up, you know, and that gives you a different perspective too. And again, it's being creative, right? You, you might think of a different way of doing something that you wouldn't have otherwise. So, right. All right. Accountability, buddy. I cannot say that. That is, that is <laughs> that very slowly. Okay. Um, so yeah, get one of those. And have the Animaniacs do it. Yeah. Oh gosh. Yeah. <laughs> We're really good and goofy now. So maybe we should. So right. let's get to our interview. Sounds great. Hello and welcome back to EPR. Today we have Dr. Jason Shiflett, the Restoration Senior Program Manager with Dawson. A uh, pretty cool company. <laughs> welcome, Jason. Glad to have you. Thank you. Glad to be here. So before we dive into what you do at Dawson, one of my favorite things about you is your interest in continuing education and, and personal growth. Um, mm-hmm. So how do you define that for yourself and why are you so passionate about it? Oh, I suppose I've had a, a long academic career. <laughs> Yeah. Um, I, I did my doctoral work while working full time. And so I've spent many, many years in academia alongside my regular work role. And I just through that experience have developed a passion for for learning, just continuing to evolve. And so I think from there, essentially, I would say there was a watermark moment in my academic career. I had a professor at the University of Georgia, Dr. Paul Schroeder, who had an interesting way of um, challenging his students. And it's kind of hard to sort of put it into words, but essentially his expectations of what we knew and how we learned and behaved were extremely high. He just assumed that you knew. And if you didn't know, you better know really quickly. <laughs> and, um, and so I learned there really, I mean, it kind of shifted my, the way I approach my academic studies. I learned there to really kind of embrace the idea of developing myself. Anyway, I've tried to carry that forward in situations where I'm more of the teacher and less of the student. And so like when you are, you know, looking to continue that education, like where do you even start? There's so many different resources and areas to go, especially nowadays. It feels like it's kind of overwhelming to even know, like where should I go looking for this? It is overwhelming, but I've learned along the way, there are a few places. Okay, so my own personal experience is I'm a graduate of Clemson and Clemson has a symposium each year, the hydrogeology symposium. And so just from my own personal experiences, I have discovered places like that that offer continuing education. But we've also become a much more virtual world, and there's a lot available online, either through the EPA or through ITRC or other organizations where you know folks can go in and, and participate in various webinars. And you know, basically, there's at least a couple of weeks through some of those bigger venues and you can kind of pick and choose what you're really most interested in. And do you see that? Is that a really unique thing in the environmental space? Is that something that more people should be doing that aren't? Well, these web-based opportunities have definitely gotten more popular in the last few years. 
They've been around for a long time, though. I encourage folks to use them because actually, not only have they become more common, they've gotten better. I mean, yeah. you can see the presentation, you can hear the author or the presenter clearly. You can raise your hand and ask questions in writing or verbally sometimes. So it's kind of like if you do college online, it's kind of a similar experience. And so I really, I really am fond of them. The other nice thing is if you register for these events online, typically you get, you know, continuing education credit, which some folks need, but also you can after the fact, download and re-listen, frankly, re-listen to the presentation if you want. So I do like in-person opportunities as, you know, as well. I, I think that's vital for folks to find at least one annually, one opportunity where they can go and meet people face-to-face and have that experience that way. But for those that re- require continuing education credits, I get many of mine online. Yeah, and it's a great point. And, you know, it's funny, you kind of touched on this a little bit, but um, we talk about personal growth and leadership. So where you go from being a student to a teacher, do you see those things as, as two different things? Have you, has your approach to growth changed now that you're in more of a leadership role? Oh, yeah, for sure. Yes, I can see that the type of business that we're in can be complicated. And in some ways, time is sort of the only thing that really matters. You have to work on projects for an extended period of time. You have to be exposed to different kinds of work over extended periods of time. And I think because I'm now, you know, where I am and looking back previously, I can still remember not knowing what various acronyms meant or what a specific kind of remediation system really meant. And so I I accept that people struggle with that. So the position that I'm in today, I try to take that knowledge and use it to help me explain and, you know, concepts or the like to my junior staff and, and folks that are just entering the industry. Do you have any specific advice for those people just entering the industry or who are already on their first job? I get a lot of questions from career seekers and emerging professionals about adding those, filling those gaps they have on their resume. And it's hard for them sometimes to figure out where they can learn about those policies or the field procedures and things like that if they're not able to get an actual internship or you know, it's hard to learn a wellness assessment protocols through Zoom. <laughs> like So um, any thoughts on, on that for those people trying to build their resumes up? Well, that's a really tough one. And what I want to do is... <laughs> so I feel... <laughs> I want to put on my Paul Schroeder hat and say, if you want to know, then go learn it. Go do it. If you have a passion for a particular subject, whether it's it's wetlands or otherwise spend time in that arena and talk to people who do that kind of work. I mean, take some personal responsibility in digging. If you have a job of a work experience and maybe you're not getting the kind of breadth of exposure that you want, that can be a little more complicated and you might have to, oh boy, I don't even know how you would do that. Let's say, I guess what I'm thinking is if you're, let's say you're a a young employee and your job is to perform site assessment work and that's all you ever do for that company to expand outside of that. You may have to 
look around, I guess, and see if you can find an experience that's going to let you spread your wings a little bit in different areas. It's kind of hard to do if you're in the middle of working day to day, though. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I like what you said, though. You have to take personal responsibility to go out there and do it. I think a lot of people sit back and say, well, I can't or they won't let me or whatever that case might be. But if you really want to expand, you might have to do it on the weekends or you might have to volunteer to swap some time with a different division or department or something. Yeah, I, I have to say, as a person who evaluates folks that we hire and folks that report to me, it's not always about exactly what you know technically. In some cases, it really boils down to what kind of ambition do you have? What kind of motivation do you have? Are you internally driven and motivated? And for a young person to say, you know what, this is not what I do. This particular interest I have is not what I do day to day, but I'm going to take it on myself to learn and get involved in any way I can. That says something about that person. And that's important. Yeah, totally agree. That's great. Well, Nick talks about you all the time in your leadership. And so we're always looking for people to write articles for the NAAP blog. So you're welcome to <laughs> volunteer with that spare time that you have anytime. Sure. Be happy to. <laughs> um, but aside from that, let's jump backwards a little bit and talk about what you do at Dawson. Okay. So Dawson has multiple business lines. One of those business lines we call the environmental business line. And we do lots of work in our environmental group, everything from compliance and planning through restoration. And restoration, I would explain sort of briefly, is assessment and remediation, if necessary, of kind of the traditional contaminants that people think about, petroleum, chlorinated solvents, you know, that sort of thing. That type of environmental work falls, you know, within the restoration world. And that's what my focus is at Dawson. I'm the restoration lead. All right. Awesome. Thank you for explaining that because I was the restoration expert at the Environmental Protection Commission, but I did habitats and coastal shorelines. So yeah, okay. <laughs> that's another, that happens a lot yeah. in environmental, right? There's multiple meetings for different words. Um, yeah. So I'm glad you explained that. But you're also a professional geologist. So yeah. uh, maybe for our younger listeners and maybe someone who is a early geology graduate, like what kind of jobs did you do when you first started? And is, are you doing what you thought you would do? Oh, gosh, no. Um, well, <laughs> well, sort of, maybe. Actually, I will confess that when I decided to change majors for my undergrad degree to geology, I really had very little understanding of what that meant. I probably... I think I remember thinking, well, I'm going to work on an oil rig somewhere or I'm going to do something with the oil business. And I didn't really understand the world of environmental consulting very well. That changed a little bit in graduate school when I studied clay mineralogy and did entertain working for an oil company for a brief moment. And uh, at any rate, I was hired after my graduate degree, I was hired as a a project geologist, basically a, a person that was going to be in the field performing the work that we perform, soil sampling, water sampling, well installation, a lot of note-taking, field note-taking, and things like that. I did that for quite a while and, and just over time progressed from being a you know a site geologist to 
a site manager to being then the you know project manager and ultimately program manager and up. So, you know, I've been doing this since August of 1998. So it's taken a long time to get where I am. But I've done a lot of those steps along the way. I've spent many, many days in the field doing field work. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, we got questions for you there. (laughs) What point did you become a professional geologist or get your certification? Right. So there are requirements. You have to have the educational background to be able to take the tests. I got my PG in North Carolina, which is an ASBOG state. So there are some states that share reciprocity. If you get the license in North Carolina, then you also can essentially have the same license in Florida, for example. Mm. So I actually got my PG in 2000, a couple years after I started in 98. So I got it pretty quickly. And that is sort of normal. You don't want to wait too long because part of the test is academic based. What did you learn in school? And the longer you wait, Mm. more difficult that becomes. Oh, wow. That's a really great (laughs) point. What did I learn in school? Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, Yeah. I can't tell you what I learned in school. Starting to forget Um, those details. Yeah. (laughs) Last question on that. How does your professional geologist certification, how does being a a PG relate to the remediation work? Okay. Good question. Many times our primary client, which is the federal government, they will require, contractually require, either a professional engineer or professional geologist to oversee some activities. So you've got to have a person that has the license and the experience and the subject matter expertise to oversee the work. So in some cases, it's a contract requirement. Generally, though, I don't use my PG very often. I use it more in proposals to demonstrate experience and expertise. But on a day-to-day basis, I don't stamp or seal documents very often. There are the occasions where it's required, though. Fantastic. And I'm going to change gears on, on us just a little bit here. You mentioned in our little survey that we do for our guests before we chat, geologic travel. Is that just oh, yeah. a, a term you made up or is that a real thing? <laughs> I probably made it up. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I like it. <laughs> yeah. But I want to know more. What does that mean? Yeah. So obviously what I'm getting at, or maybe not obviously, but what I'm getting at is I have dragged my family all over the United <laughs> States to see things geologically related. I tell this great story that we were near Yellowstone National Park. And south of Yellowstone, when you exit the park, one of the largest landslides that's ever occurred in the United States is sort of off the beaten path in that area. And nobody wants to see that sort of thing except for geology geeks like me. (laughs) Because I'm the driver, my family gets to go um, gets to go see that sort of stuff. And so. It's kind of an internal joke within my family. My kids roll their eyes when they, you know, hear we're going to go see some outcrop or some, you know, <laughs> apartment or earthquake lake or whatever. You know, they. <laughs> it's been all kinds of things. So just a, a lot of a lot of that. Now, in my graduate degree, during my graduate work at Georgia, I was involved in a program that takes students 
literally all over the United States, and they learn anthropology and geology along the way. It's a class that they offer. And so I did that for two summers. So for two summers in a row, we drove something like five or 6,000 miles and spent 60 days camping and, and visiting both anthropological sites and geological sites. And actually, you know, sitting on the rim of the Grand Canyon and teaching the Grand Canyon is pretty amazing. Yeah. Oh, wow. Yeah. I did college wrong. I did it so wrong. I just, I know. Yeah. Same. <laughs> that sounds really great. Yeah. <laughs> it was cool. Yeah. All right. Last work question. Then I'm gonna let Nick take over. Um, <laughs> PFAS has been quite controversial lately in the environmental field. So what are some of the challenges in dealing with PFAS and how do you see the remediation field tackling those issues going forward? Well, PFAS is, is a difficult compound. You know, folks may already know this, but in case you don't know, it's it's a compound that at its you know base has carbon fluorine bonds, which are just incredibly difficult to break. And so it's uh, the term that I use is recalcitrant. It's a very recalcitrant compound and do- doesn't break down very easily. And which is why, frankly, why it's so useful in the ways that it's been used you know, being resistant to heat and other. I think looking back at, well, looking at PFAS and thinking back in time, I feel like we are on the verge of a massive PFAS expenditure bubble, for lack of a better term. I mean, the federal government is putting a lot of resources behind evaluating these compounds and where we can remediating these compounds. Um, no longer using them, exchanging them in systems that exist or where they exist. And I really feel like we are just beginning to manage this PFAS issue that's in front of us. I won't be surprised if it lasts 20 years easily. It is a big deal for 20 years. Yeah, and that seems to be a lot of what we've heard in the industry as well. But do you see that as the, the remediation topic going forward? Are there going to be other things that pop up as well on the horizon? It's kind of the elephant in the room. And frankly, so yes, it's going to take a lot of the oxygen. However, I think a, a close second that really doesn't get enough attention yet is climate change impacts that we're going to experience over the next couple of decades. I think that's going to be kind of more of a slow burn because it's you know, the climate is just confusing and complicated and complex. And, you know, it's hard for our government and others to really dedicate resources, money towards climate related things right now. But that's not going to stop the change that's occurring. And so we're going to be particularly along shorelines, in my opinion, we're going to be looking at um, climate related impacts too. you know, just a little um, like an example. Some folks might know, for example, there are metals like arsenic that it turns out are abundant, relatively abundant in permafrost. So as permafrost melts because of our warming planet, those metals like arsenic are going to become more prevalent in the higher latitudes. And, you know, that's an example of the kind of thing we're going to be dealing with in the years and decades to come that maybe we just aren't totally focused on right now because we have other things in front of us like PFAS. 
Man, really interesting. So yeah, it's going to be a pretty wild year. Or I guess actually a few years. The future of the industry <laughs> yeah. is going to be pretty interesting. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> that's for sure. But now it's time for field notes. Like you mentioned having field stories before, and this is the part of the show where we ask our guests about memorable moments doing the work that they do in the field. And so we're encouraging our listeners to share stories using hashtag field notes so we can read them out on future episodes. But, you know, go through a couple, give everybody a few examples of what we're looking for when we talk about, you know, field notes. Like what is a story, you know, about being in the field? And we're going to keep them kind of simple, you know, like do you have, you have a good funny story of being in the field? Oh, oh man. Funny. I think when I think of field work and funny, Mm-hmm. Um, honestly, the first thing that comes to mind for me is when you're in the field for an extended period of time, usually with a small group of people, you really start to develop, obviously, friendships and, you know, there's a lot of camaraderie there. And when I think of funny in the field, I don't know that I have a specific event as much as I would characterize it as saying, you know, there are just those kind of squirrely moments where folks, you know, somebody might get stuck in the mud or they, you know, they've filled up a sample jar and then they promptly drop it on the the concrete pad, the well pad, and it shatters. And, you know, I mean, it's kind of all the little things and, you know, tied together with this relationship that you have with these people in the field, the, you know, if you've ever walked through a cornfield where the corn is above your head and, you, you know, take a funny picture of that and send it home to people, those are the kind of the moments that I think of versus maybe a distinct event. Yeah. Gosh, which is funny, though, because it reminds me doing a survey in a, in a salt marsh and just watching the person in front of me whoop, all the way down, <laughs> like her whole leg. Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And you're exactly right. It's not really. Yeah, it's just it's funny because of who it was and how it happened. <laughs> Yeah, 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 for sure. So, okay. <laughs> so, what about that? What about scary moments? You know, we we all have those too. Where it's a, you know, I remember I almost not. Oh no, I did knock myself out once by myself, foolishly by myself in the field. So, yeah, there's always stories like that. Do you have anything along those lines? Well, there's always the typical, you know, work in a sketchy place where you don't really feel comfortable, and even mm-hmm. though you're you've got the buddy system going. You and your coworker are a little worried about the locale. Um, so there's always that. I can remember, I do remember this event. Um, I was doing field work in Miami once. And, you know, if you've ever done work in South Florida, thunderstorms roll in and out all day long and they're very quick uh, to happen. Mm-hmm. And so we were drilling and um, the thunderstorm, you know, rolled in quickly and we all kind of huddled into the trailer there on site. And as soon as we closed the door, a lightning strike happened and it hit the, a lightning bolt hit the tree right outside of the trailer where we were standing. Oof. I mean, it was less than 20 <laughs> feet away. And that's terrifying. If you've ever been close to a lightning strike, it's quite scary. So definitely have had that experience. And then, you know, kind of different. If you're in the field a lot for an extended period of time, sometimes things go wrong back home. And I can remember kind of scary and sad getting a phone call that my mom had had a medical emergency and, you know, I had to sort of drop what I was doing and leave and fly home immediately. And that's pretty scary and challenging, but yeah, it happens. It, it definitely can happen when you least expect it. Yeah, absolutely. 
And that's a really good point too. We, have, we actually haven't even talked about that really, you know, cause you're away from your family. You're out there sometimes for, you know, weeks on end, maybe longer out on your own. Yeah. It, it can be quite a scary place to be truthfully. So, okay. Well now we need our favorite stories, the, the embarrassing ones. You've got to have, I know you've got an embarrassing story in there somewhere. Oh yes. yes so I you got to give us one of those. <laughs> All right. I'm going to, I'm, you know, to, protect the identity of others. I'm going to tone <laughs> the story down just a little bit, but I'll say it this way. This has been quite a while back. And at the time, eBay was kind of becoming a thing. Okay. And I had a neighbor who was elderly and didn't understand what eBay was. And so I offered to help them sell something on eBay. And without saying what the something was, just trust <laughs> me when I say it was a little on the crude side <laughs> and a little on the inappropriate maybe side. It was not, you know, it wasn't, it was something I would love to have kept on the down low. as they said. <laughs> so <clears throat> anyway, fast forward to my meeting with, I had a meeting with a client on site and we were going to be presenting to the public some information the following day. And this mm. client, there were several of them um, who were there with me. We, but basically what they want to do is practice the presentation the night before. No problem. <laughs> Happy to do that. Everything's ready. We're just going to be going over it. So I'm, I'm using my, my laptop computer and I'm broadcasting this presentation on the wall and it's a small <laughs> group of people. And the folks that are old enough to remember are going to remember what happens when you get a pop-up on your. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm in the middle of presenting, you know, with my client and this crude thing, eBay message pops up and it's there and it's very obvious. <laughs> no hiding it. So. To make matters worse, I had worse. I had my supervisor, this, this older senior engineer who mm. was there with me just to come along and participate. So he witnessed, you know, witnessed <laughs> this happening. And the only thing I could do was basically say to my female client, listen, I'm really sorry that you had to see that. <laughs> I tried to explain it in as few words as possible. <laughs> But it was what it was. So <laughs> that was a lesson I learned on the spot to turn off those stinking pop-up messages. And I'm also <laughs> now very cautious about using my own computer for presentations. Yep. yep. <laughs> you never know. You absolutely <laughs> never I know. Learn now. Okay, full circle. Now we see why personal growth and development is so important to you. <laughs> That's right. That's right. We have to I've learn learned. from our mistakes. <laughs> Traumatized. <laughs> yeah. Oh, okay. So um, what was the aftermath of that? Right. So what happens? Uh, you're embarrassed. Well, to explain. The, what happened? After? The, yeah. The good news is that I had a good relationship with the client. She totally understood. She kind of laughed it off. She was actually from European descent. So she kind of blew it off anyway. You know, mm -hmm. it was no big deal. And my kind of like, hey, I got something I need to sell too. Yeah, yeah, right. <laughs> and my my supervisor never said a word about it. Actually, so <laughs> that was probably the strangest um, part yeah. of the story. 
He oh, just man. ignored it. Oh, yeah. Didn't see that. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Oh, man. So, yeah, that's a great story. And uh, <laughs> yeah, we've. We've all been there. Uh, well, I, mean, I exactly haven't been there. there. But, no, that's yeah, not maybe not exactly there, but <laughs> yeah, we've all had embarrassing moments. That's all I mean. <laughs> that's what I get for trying to help a neighbor, right? But yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I love it. No, no, no. It's not. It's not for me. <laughs> no good. There it is, Jason. Sure, sure, absolutely. <laughs> no, right? Yeah. Um, <laughs> so, okay. All right. Is there any other stories that come to mind? Anything else from your like the personal favorite story of you being out in the field that oh. you can think of? I'll tell one quick story. This one has stuck with me for a long time. So we were doing some sampling work and it was a major event and we were going to have lots of folks support the effort. And one of the folks that was going to join us late, a little bit late to the rest of the group, decided that he was going to drive to the site and drive a trailer and bring a lot of extra equipment with him to the site. So very kind of him to do that. And, you know, it was a little bit of a heavy lift for him to do that, but he offered. And so we accepted. So he arrives on site after a, a, essentially a day, a full day of driving. And we roll up the trailer door where all the equipment is supposed to be. All the extra sampling coolers are supposed to be. And sitting right at the edge of the trailer is two cans of gasoline. And I said, uh, what is this? And he said, well, I, I didn't know if I was going to run out of gas, so I brought some extra gasoline with me for the trip so I didn't have to stop to get gas if I needed it. Mm-hmm. And I said to him, you realize you just contaminated all of the coolers that you carried down here so oh. faithfully by <laughs> carrying gasoline in the same trailer. And oh, that's right. He oh, kind of scratched gosh. his head and said, oh, yeah, okay, <laughs> see that now. <laughs> so, oh, no. Oh my gosh. That was another one of those learning moments for him and, <laughs> and others. <laughs> yeah. Oh man. See, so what did he, have? did he have to go back all the way back? Yeah, it was all, it was all wasted. We had the labs have to ship us all new coolers, all new <laughs> equipment. It was, it was basically a wasted effort because he had, you know, brought all that stuff with him and he was trying to think ahead and just didn't put together in his mind that that gasoline was going to contaminate everything he carried with it. So. Oh my gosh. Yeah. Oh, trying to be efficient. Yeah. 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 Wow. Yeah. Oh, and I'll tell you one more. Now that <laughs> I'm on a roll. <laughs> yes. That's what we want. The worst field experience I ever had, but bar none was I was drilling at a, a military installation in North Carolina and for the 10 days I was there, I feel like the temperature never moved above 35 and never fell below 30. So it was basically almost freezing for 10 days mm. and raining. Mm. And I had the flu. <laughs> it was terrible. It was the worst <laughs> field experience ever in my life. Not even close, but somehow I've made my way through it. But that can happen too. Yeah. Oh my gosh. Yeah. That's brutal. That is not fun. That's, yeah. <laughs> so, all right. Well, ending on a lighter note here, <laughs> uh, we love, we love asking our guests about their hobbies too. Cause I think it's the, one of the joys of the profession is that everybody has different things that they like to do outside of work. And one of your favorites is, is soccer and playing soccer, not just, not just watching it. So so what, what got you into soccer? And we'll get into the World Cup in a second, but like, why yeah. soccer? 
Oh, well, I don't know. My parents maybe signed me up when I was about six years old, I guess. That was the beginning. (laughs) I just started early. I played my whole life, but really never developed a passion for it until I was in my 20s. And then it was like a passion on steroids. I've kind of I've played, coached kind of the full gamut, uh, coached um, younger boys and girls, older boys and not really older girls, I guess. But anyway, did that for a long, long time, too. So I don't know how to say it other than I'm, I'm a total soccer addict. I played this morning. I try to play four <laughs> mornings a week before work. Four? At least I would play every day if I weren't so old and slow. Uh, <laughs> you know, I used to be able to play more often. But anyway, yeah. Who are you just, playing with? Who else is playing four days a week before work? So when I moved back to the Charlotte area after school, I found a group of guys that was maybe a list of 50 or so on a, oh, an email wow. list uh, and that they would basically just by way of email coordinate to meet. And at that point it was maybe a couple days a week and in the late nineties. And that's just grown over the years to oh, now wow. we have, you know, close to 400 people on this list. Wow. We use this app to organize it. And, um, and now there are games every day except for Sunday. So, and we had like 30 people show up this morning and we had to have two games because it was such a busy morning. So, Oh my gosh. Uh, we, we play year round. So, okay. What's your position? Where do you like to play? I typically end up in the middle as mm-hmm. a quote unquote midfielder. I kind of like to attack a little bit mm-hmm. as I get tired. I kind of defend a little bit more. So, you know, I play in the middle. Yeah. Perfect. Perfect. That's a good spot to be. You get to do a little bit of everything, which is fun. So yeah. 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 Well, cool. And uh, so how do you think the men's national team did in the World Cup this year? Were you happy with the results? Do you think they could have done better? What do you I think? I think it was about what I expected, frankly. They're a fairly young team mm-hmm. with a whole lot of talent. Yeah. I think four years from now, they could really make some waves. But it kind of went about like I expected. I had both France and Argentina in my final four. If I remember correctly, thinking back in my you know bracket or whatever, so I wasn't too surprised to see that. Mm-hmm. Um, so all in all, you know, yeah, pretty good. Yeah, yeah. The, the, one of the greatest ga- soccer games ever. Uh, the final, the, was the final was exceptional. Yeah, I mean, I don't know how else you can say it other than a phenom like Mbappe, who's just doing the ridiculous. Oh yeah, um, things that he does and can do against a legend like Messi, who a lot of people deserve, you know, would argue he deserves to win or, you know, he's earned that, you know, that right to win. And he does. I mean, it was amazing. It absolutely was amazing. Yeah. Yeah. And he, he really had to earn it. <laughs> yeah, yeah really? he did. <laughs> so, all right. Oh, yeah. All right. I, I hate to cut you two off. <clears throat> I know. I know. <laughs> but uh, <laughs> we are running out of time. So, Jason, is there anything else you'd like to talk about before we let you go? Oh, just I really appreciate the opportunity to speak with you guys. And I think if I could leave you on one note, it would be this idea of personal growth and responsibility. Uh, I'm a lifetime learner, and I really encourage folks to take that passion on themselves and um, you know strive to improve yourself. That's a big deal for all of us. So, yeah, I think I would say that. Great. I think that's a great message. And lastly, where can people get in touch with you? Well, I'm on LinkedIn. Um, that's probably the simplest way. Jason Shiflett, PhD, PG, you, you kind of can't miss it. It's there. 
it might be locked down. So you might have to actually connect with me to be able to see anything on my profile, but I'm happy to make relationships and meet people. And, and if anybody wants to chat about anything that they heard here or just meet me, I'm certainly um, open to that and, and willing to chat. Awesome. Thank you so much. This has been great. Thanks for joining us. Yeah, thank you. And that's our show. Thank you, Jason Shiflett, for joining the show today. I got it right this time. <laughs> Please be sure Doctor. to check us out. Yeah, Dr. Jason Shiflett. Dang it, I messed it up again. There we go. Please be sure to check us out each and every Friday. Don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review. See you, everybody. Bye.